We're here with Tim Stewart-Bottle at the University of York, who's going to talk to us about his new book, From Moral Theology to Moral Philosophy, Cicero and Visions of Humanity from Locke to Hume, which was published by Oxford University Press in 2019. So thank you, Tim, for being here and taking the time. Would you mind starting by um, saying a little bit about the background to the book? So it started as a PhD at Oxford, I think. Yeah, let me start by thanking you for, for doing this. Uh, it's nice to have some adult conversation. I've been surrounded by two kids under five for the last four months. So it might, it might show my lack of conversational ability. Um, yeah, the book initially took the form of a doctoral dissertation, which was in 2009. Um, and when I try and work through what the conception initially was and then the form it eventually took, there's quite a, a difference between the two. Um, so I think from memory, the doctoral proposal was to, to kind of focus squarely on Hume's history of England, um, broadly from the kinds of perspectives that you bring to bear on it in your own work. So a kind of primarily a political context for it, you know, is, is Hume, a, does it make sense to call him a Whig or a Tory or neither, or if neither, what exactly is he doing? Um, and for all that that's now changed, so Hume only figures in the final chapter of the book, and the history only features in pretty much the final section of the final chapter, um, I can kind of see lines of continuity and development. Um, I think I wanted to work on the history initially because I wanted to get at a series of questions, uh, which in due course I thought I could kind of access more fruitfully through other means, as it were. Um, and those kinds of questions, I guess, were to do with how Hume's particular species of philosophical scepticism, which I guess was the first point, what is that, are brought to bear on his understanding of moral and political agency. Um, and when that's applied to the historical past, what kind of narrative of historical change does it generate? What's the relationship between individual character and impersonal forces? You know, how is he grappling with the kind of Montesquieu and the like challenge there? Where do we get our moral values from? These kinds of questions. And always from the first, it was the question of religion and the effect of religious belief on civil society, on community, on our sense of selves and how kind of fanaticism and superstition are understood as either, I guess, the kind of evacuation of responsibility. So we are possessed almost against our will by God or whatever it might be, or in a sense, it's the voluntary alienation of responsibility. So we, we hand it over to those who are appointed to govern us, if you like, whether it's priests or magistrates or whatever it might be. Um, and I think those questions very much kind of run through the book in the form it took. Um, there was another type of question that I wanted to get at, which I don't know whether I do to the same extent in this book, which is whether for Hume and, and for Locke and so on, for those of a certain sceptical disposition, there's a, a politics and maybe even an ethics of writing. So whether the, you know, how exactly do you claim an authority over your reader if it can't be predicated on these kinds of foundations that you are critiquing? So those kinds of questions. Um, but then the first port of call as a doctoral student wanting to work on Hume was to work properly on the treatise with a view to going back to the history. But I never quite made it back to the history. Instead, I kept on going backwards. I kept on going, I went past Hume and ended up with Locke. And the optic I ended up using to evaluate the developments between Locke and Hume was an even more ancient <laughs> and that was, that was Cicero. Excellent. And we're going to come on to Cicero in a moment. But before then, I would like to ask you if you could spend a little bit of time on the book's um, main title. So from moral theology to moral philosophy, could you please explain 
what uh, what this mean? <laughs> yeah. So the first thing I should say, the big caveat is that I'm awful at titles. So famously bad at titles. So when you set your own title as a student, for example, it was always a source of ridicule. Um, and I don't particularly like this one either. Um, I don't mind it, by the way. Just to, well, that, that, was, that wasn't my point. But okay. that's, that's good of you. I'm glad. Um, but either I mean, I'm currently working on an essay on, on Edward Gibbon and it, you know, constantly reminded that the decline and fall of the Roman Empire simply doesn't capture the totality of what Gibbon is doing. There's as much about survival and rebirth and syncretism as there is about decline. Um, and I feel like without wanting to compare my book to Gibbon's, there's an element of you know, comparison there because the title implies progression, evaluative progression maybe. So how did we get from moral theology to moral philosophy? And thank God we did, as it were, if that's not inappropriate. Um, but that's not really the point I'm looking to make. It's how a group of very various philosophers broached broadly shared questions and came up with very different ways of grappling with them. One of those ways is deliberately to the exclusion of moral theology, which I define, I guess, as being an approach that seeks to understand the moral quality of our actions and characters relative to divine will. Um, so, you know, in, in my account, Hume's kind of insistent concern is to push back against the claims of moral theology and to undermine the kinds of intellectual foundations on which it, it builds. So there you've got a question of, of the foundations of moral obligation. So why are we obliged to behave morally? Well, a very powerful mode of explanation of that would invoke God's will as being the law by which we ought to govern our actions. And then the question of moral motivation. So what leads us still, even if we know that, to actually behave as we know we should, well, there the kind of sanctions of a future state of rewards and punishments, so heaven and hell, is offered as a very powerful incentive by some forms of moral theology. And the form that I have particularly in mind in the book is the form of moral theology offered by John Locke. So, you know, as, as you know very well, Locke is credited as being, if you like, the pioneer of the science of man at the outset of Hume's treatise. Um, and then he's followed by a cluster of characters, some of whom uh, I focus on in the book, like Shaftesbury and Mandeville, some of whom I have less to say about, like Butler and, and Francis Hutcheson. Um, and Locke's moral theology was articulated, at least in part, through a witheringly sceptical critique of pre-Christian moral philosophy, right? So, you know, one of Locke's point is that the ancient moral philosophers professed to offer what they couldn't. They professed to offer a kind of definition of man's true end, the summum bonum, uh, a list of the kind of precepts that are consistent with the pursuit of that end, and an account of why we ought to be motivated and why we are motivated in practice to live accordingly because we're rational or because we seek honour or because we don't want to be punished by the state or whatever it might be. And on Locke's account, it's only Christianity that can explain compellingly why a particular actional characteristic is, is properly deemed moral because it's God's will and to give an account of why we might be motivated to pursue it, which is because we're concerned for righteousness and salvation. So Locke offers a very powerful articulation of moral theology that's predicated on foundations, many of which Hume share. That's what's interesting. So epistemological fallibilism, so a degree of skepticism about the limits of human reason and in terms of motivation, a concern for pleasure and pain, hedonic principles, these kinds of things. And Locke is using these in order to vindicate a particular type of moral theology, whereas Hume is drawing upon them in order to reach very different conclusions. Um, so that broadly, I guess, explains the title. I'm still not entirely happy with it, but I'm glad you, I'm glad you don't think it's awful. No, I, th I think it's brilliant. 
And uh, moving on to the subtitle of, uh, of the book, um, so Cicero and Visions of Humanity from Locke to Hume. Uh, from Locke to Hume, that's the chronological um, scope of the book, but Cicero is at the heart of it. So uh, could you perhaps explain why Cicero was so important for think thinkers such as Locke and Hume and others in the, in the 17th and 18th centuries? So as you say at the end of the book, this engagement with Cicero's moral philosophy would later seem incomprehensible to 19th century historians such as T.B. Macaulay and, and Monson. Yeah, I mean, so I should, I should qualify that, that statement about the likes of Macaulay and Monson. Um, so, you know, throughout the 19th century and indeed on into the 20th, for those who had a classical education, I guess, Cicero remains central in moral kind of pedagogy. He's still a central figure and indeed in kind of, you know, forms of political education and citizenship. So Diophakis, Cicero's offices, remains a kind of staple on the curriculum as it is in the 17th and 18th century and as it was going back centuries to the Renaissance. So Cicero being kind of central in the firmament of kind of Western education isn't itself surprising, it's a constant. And saying that Locke and Hume admire Cicero is not saying very much relative to that because everyone admires Cicero in the period. What I guess the book's getting at is that they offer a Cicero who is, if you like, a philosophical originator. He's a radically kind of pioneering figure, it seems, in the way they want to present him. So part of that is precisely because of his recognition of the limits of human reason and the limits of what philosophy can hope to achieve. That's why on their kind of interpretation, he's pushing back against the kinds of dogmatism practiced by other philosophical sects. But I mean, a, a broader and, and rather banal comment is that 18th century culture, not least intellectual culture, remained kind of deeply classicizing, but also profoundly Christian. And the question always there is lurking is, is going to be what the relationship between these two elements of the European inheritance might be. So that can be pursued in a kind of historical frame as by, as by Gibbon, for example, um, but also in terms of the kinds of moral claims that are leveraged, if you like, by ancient and Christian philosophers of various stripes and what the history of philosophy might look like. Um, and there's been a recent tendency among intellectual historians to categorize 17th and 18th century philosophers relative to two Hellenistic philosophical traditions in particular, so the Stoic and the Epicurean. So as you'll, you'll know very well, we've had a kind of, there was once a, a more popular kind of broadly Stoic reading of David Hume. Um, so Hume was placed close to Hutchison and, and perhaps Shaftesbury, both of whom were very explicit admirers of ancient Stoicism and in a sense sought to kind of repackage its insights for a modern audience. Um, but then more recently, the tendency has been to see Hume as a broadly Epicurean figure who's following in the footpaths of Pierre Bale or Bernard Mandeville. And there's a, a cluster of assumptions related to those labels. So, you know, the Stoics would, broadly speaking, be seen to defend natural human sociability, the idea of a politics predicated on uncoerced consent, and the notion that somehow, you know, by reason alone, we can access a sense of what is morally obligatory. Um, whereas the Epicurean position is aligned with kind of assumptions that we might call Habesian in their outline, so a kind of denial of natural sociability, the idea of some form of constraint and coercion as being integral to social life, hence why politics is required to kind of provide those means of punishment. Um, so those kinds of positions, you know, I argue in the book, capture something very important about philosophy in this period, right? Because 
Locke and, and Hume and a lesser figure I discussed, Conyers Middleton, lesser in terms of how historians consider him, um, they all, polemical purposes or otherwise, want to categorize their interlocutors in their own day as being, broadly speaking, neo-Stoics or neo-Epicureans. This is particularly strong in Hume's second inquiry where he, you know, brackets either with those or with those. And that serves their purpose, right? It allows them to chart a terrain that in a sense transcends what they take to be the sterile debates between these two philosophical groupings that continue to exist in their own day. And one way in which they do that is to identify their philosophies with an ancient philosopher who's held to stand apart from those two traditions and to be critical of both. And that's Cicero. So seen in that position, Cicero looks like a kind of pioneering and fiercely independent figure who stands apart from the currents of his own age and indeed of all ages because he dares to doubt where others commit, if you like. He's willing to live with, with doubt and to answer the big questions insofar as he can, but where he can't, to stand back and admit that he can't go any further. Um, so this is a, more, a much more radical Cicero, if you like. Not radical in terms of the kinds of political positions it might lead to, although it could be. Um, it can be entirely consistent with a more conservative form of politics, as you might say is the case with you. Um, but he's radical in terms of his understanding of the history of philosophy, if nothing else where he sees himself and he's presented as a very kind of idiosyncratic figure. Excellent. Um, and you've already touched upon what I wanted to ask you next, um, because this book is very much about Hume and Locke in, uh, in conversation with each other um, in, in, in various ways. So unlike historians of philosophy, historians of political thought, um, have not always looked at Hume and, uh, and Locke so much in, in conversation uh, because Hume rejected Locke's contractarianism. And um, of course, we're also very influenced by, by the, the work of John Donne, uh, John Pocock uh, and, and the likes. So why, why, is, why is this, you think? Um, so is it because historians are too, too obsessed with, uh, historians of political thought in particular, too obsessed with the two treatises? Um, and more broadly, what do, you, what do you think your book can tell us about what, how we should look at Locke's afterlife in the 18th century? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. So certainly the last bit of that, the question of Locke's afterlife or afterlives, is at the, ultimately the heart of the book. It's not a book about Locke's reception, really. It's not a book about Cicero's reception. It's about particular perspectives on <laughs> Locke or Cicero and why why. Uh, later philosophers identify with them or not in the way they do. Um, but, you know, Locke suffered a slightly curious fate in the last 50 or so years, 40 years maybe, where, whereas once, as Pocock put it, you know, he was acted like a greenhouse effect in intellectual history, as Pocock says, which means ultimately everything was channeled through Locke, right? Our understanding of 18th century developments was predicated on our understanding of Locke's revolutionary role in terms of predicating politics on consent and all these kinds of questions. But now we know that Locke simply wasn't speaking the kinds of languages that dominate 18th century political thought. So now it's very hard to put Locke back into the picture because someone like Pocock, for example, as he puts it, very deliberately moves Locke out, puts him on the margins, and then is willing to address the question of how you can put him back in. But he says, you know, having moved Locke out, he simply can't see how to put him back in. And I think, you know, that that's understandable if we approach the figures we study with a, a kind of determinate sense of 
where we ought to place them, right? So lock is a contractarian or lock is this or not is that. Hume is that broadly utilitarian, whatever it might be. So clearly, if we approach them with that frame of reference already in mind, we're only going to find one of two things. Either, yes, that's right, right? So lock is a, uh, a contractarian. Hume is a critic of that tradition, if it can be seen as a tradition in Hume's own day. And therefore, there's not much to be said other than he either compellingly undermines Locke's position or he doesn't. And or the second position would be to say, actually, it's more nuanced than that because the Locke that Hume gives us isn't Locke at all. He's some kind of figment of Hume's imagination. He's a straw man. So actually what that tells us is there's no meaningful engagement between Hume and Locke at all. So you're going to get one or the other. Whereas, you know, I'm not saying I did it deliberately, but insofar as I was tracking back and I was asking a series of different questions, one of which was why on earth is Hume such an admirer of Cicero interpreted as an academic skeptic, critical of Stoicism and Epicureanism, then identify Locke as being someone who stakes out a very similar position. And to ask, well, how is it possible that two philosophers who ultimately are getting at very different things, whether it's in their politics or in their presentation of their moral philosophies, the foundations of ethics, how are they still able to share that common ground that is distinctive and quite unusual in the period in which they both live? And if you broach that question, then you see lines of continuity and potentially engagement, not a point I'd want to push too far, but you certainly see lines of, con of continuity and points of contact between them that I think have eluded much scholarship, which deals with these kinds of paradigms. Um, you know, there's one thing I'd throw into the mix is, well, Locke's engaging very closely with Jansenist moral psychology, he translates Pierre Carl and all these kinds of things. And recent work on Hume wants to emphasize the levels of engagement between him and Bale or him and Mandeville. Well, there's a shared pool, if you like, of ideas going on there. And Locke has a, an interest in that as well. Um, so the moral psychology dimension, I think, has been underplayed and it kind of reaps greater attentiveness, I suppose. No, that's fantastic. And um, so we talked about some of the well-known, if you like, canonical figures in the book, um, Locke and Hume in, in particular, but you already mentioned uh, a lesser known figure, Conyers Middleton, because that's also one of the real virtues of the book is that you, you, um, you look very contextually and, um, uh, and you also use um, archival material when looking at uh, these uh, lesser known figures, Conyers Middleton in, in particular, but you also have chapters on Shaftesbury and Mandeville uh, and other thinkers. So uh, on the backdrop, um, with that as a backdrop, would you mind saying a few words about your approach to intellectual history? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll spare you my reasoning for why Conyers Middleton is brilliant and thoroughly worth studying, other than to say that in his own day, as you know, well know, in Hume's brief autobiography, Middleton is one of the very few contemporaries mentioned by, by Hume. William Warburton revealingly is the other. So that says something about the relative stature of the figures that, you know, how we define canonical as against those who are attracting attention in Hume's own day. It tells you something about that. But I'll kind of leave that to one side in terms of, I guess, my approach to intellectual history. There's a sense in which wanting to get beyond the Epicurean Stoic binary epitomizes one element of it, which is a conviction that kind of engagement and exchange and dialogue between different perspectives is generative and creates, that's what creates new ways of thinking, right? It's precisely that dynamic. Um, so rather than having one ism combating another and ending up winning or losing, 
there's something much more kind of developmental, syncretic and, and subtle in play. And I think that's just how ideas work, right? I think through dialogue, we both change the ways we think. That's, that's how, at least I hope as a teacher, that that is true. Um, so I guess it's a commitment to that. It's a commitment to the sense that disciplinary boundaries are porous. So there might be moments at which they are impermeable. There might be moments at which it's very hard to cross them. Middleton's commitments are emphatically not Hume's, but that's not to say that they can't speak to questions in a way that allows for connections um, and that Hume's engagement with Middleton might go beyond the point that everyone knows about, which is they both speak about miracles in ways that are very controversial. Well, Middleton also writes a, a history of Cicero, and that's the connection between the two that kind of interests me to ask, well, it's about the place of religion in civil society and how destabilizing or otherwise it potentially can be. So these kinds of unexpected conversations, which you can't force, but when I kind of think I see them, that's what I find most satisfying is to attempt to reconstruct them and to work out how two figures that we consider to be so far apart might be slightly closer in various ways than we, we tend to realize. That's excellent. Um, and staying with the theme of disciplinary boundaries, so since you started writing this book, you've moved to a politics department, you now lecture in, in political theory, um, and uh, the question I guess I would like to ask you is, um, this interest you have in the intersection between history and political theory, is that a part of your journey? Is that something, is, it, is that a new interest or is that something that was there from the beginning? Um, and uh, in relation to that, what are you working on next? What's the next book we can look forward to from you? Yeah, well, it's a, it's a, it's a good question. Um, I think it is to do with a, a journey, if you like, in so far as, as a doctoral student, there was never any, if anything, I guess the pressure felt to me anyway, as though it was, you know, what you're doing is a historical project and it's not incumbent on you to then speak to political theorists about that work. It's quite an old, old school approach to what the history of you know, intellectual history might be, which is one that if I were to write the book now, I feel like I would write it in a very different way. And that would have its merits and demerits. But some of the, the, the issues into which I'm kind of probing are ones that have a title to being, if not perennial, then close to that status about relationships between agency, social conformity, and the kinds of pressures that are brought to bear on us when we live among others in society. Um, and that you know, is firmly at the heart of my current project, which is about why 17th and 18th century philosophers are so attentive to our desire for esteem and recognition and reputation, and what role they see it to play in the kind of construction and maintenance of large-scale societies. So I guess it's a, one could see it as a prehistory of recognition theory if you want to take that, that road. Um, but if it is, it's one that suggests there are powerful lines of criticism against a kind of theory of recognition of a kind of Axel Honnett variety, as well as kind of origins of that way of thinking. So it's an attempt to kind of, it's still mapping on, I guess, to the, the point with which I started with the doctoral project which is about the relationship between kind of agency and impersonal forces and these kinds of things. Um, and that project is going to kind of run from the French Augustinians and Hobbes through, as, as one might expect, I guess, kind of the development of natural law theory with people like Richard Cumberland and Locke himself, and then Rousseau 
often associated with this, but also uh, Wollstonecraft and and I think there'll be something on now. I think there'll be something on Gibbon about how this is passed in historical frame as well. Um, Adam Smith that, as well, perhaps. Uh, yes, Adam Smith quite centrally actually. Yeah, um, but that's firmly placed in some form of dialogue with, you know, recent kind of movements in political theory. And I don't feel like that's problematic. I think it's generative and it's kind of given it a richness that um, I think is contributing to it. Um, so it's not just pragmatic by being in a politics department. <laughs> Excellent, fantastic. So we're all looking forward to the fruits of that labour. Um, so thank you so much, Tony, for your time today. No, thank you. Cheers, Max. Thank you. Cheers.